0: The artistic values of a given time period often mirror each other in art, literature, architecture, and music. In Baroque architecture, the Palace of Versailles in France combined painstaking attention to order with extravagant displays of ornamentation. And the same goes for Baroque music. It's rigid in form, but endlessly detailed. When romantic poets like Byron and Keats used poetry to wallow in their emotions, Frederick Chopin was there too, writing his tragic Prelude in E minor. When the abstract painter Jackson Pollock tested the idea of painting by splashing paint randomly on a canvas, it was only a few years before the composer John Cage wrote his piece, Four Minutes and 33 Seconds, in which the pianist sits down and plays nothing while the audience sits in silence the entire time. Impressionism in art, blurry but evocative pieces like Monet's Water Lilies or Van Gogh's Starry Night, also found its echo in music. The two most impressionist composers of the turn of the 20th century were actually two men who both refused the term. Claude Debussy, composer of Clair de Lune, and Maurice Ravel, composer of La Valse. You are listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, episode 32, Maurice Ravel. This episode is part of a larger series about Maurice Ravel's concert masterpiece, La Valse. If you're joining into this series for the first time, start by listening to episodes 28, 29, 30, and 31, which introduce the series... And review the blue danube waltz world war one and the lost generation all right race getting to know you question for you okay my question is and if you need an example i can go first my question is do you keep any lists
1: yes I'd, i want to hear your example but yes i can think of several like lists. an
0: ongoing list maybe you keep it in your phone or like a journal or whatever but and you know it's perennial you go back and add to it anytime you want or anytime yes. that it's appropriate
1: so i can think of three lists that i keep um the first one is i am interested in um Mostly, I mean this—it's for no purpose at all. Actually, none of these really serve any purpose. But um, I'm really interested in phrases or words that are only used in one context.
0: Oh yeah.
1: And part of this comes from the fact: so when I was in college, I did a little bit of stand-up comedy, and I think this is like a premise that you could go with. Um, so, yeah, there's there's words and phrases that we never use in any con we always use in the same kind of strain um and so i'm interested in those because they're kind of fun to to keep track of and to think about so for instance um like one fell swoop that's a very common phrase but like you would never say i don't know or like reckless what's the word that's going to come after that reckless
0: abandonment
1: abandon yeah like why is that like can you have like
0: cautious (laughs) abandon
1: um anyway that kind of thing i think those are fun like vanished into thin air like well is there fat air why where did that phrase even come from like there's just certain things that we never say outside of their context so that's one list that I have I list that- not,
0: by the way I have this exact same list on my phone are like I'm serious at it right now. I also keep a list and the title is <laughs> words with only one usage and that's- one that I'm noting on here is if you're talking about something being bloodshot what are you talking about
1: eyes exclusively
0: eyes exclusively right yeah or you say the word uh inclement
1: uh-huh weather it's weather yeah yeah okay what are the odds that both of us have that extremely weird list on our phones?
0: i'm cracking up but also i guess the odds are pretty high <laughs> or, knowing both of us as we do
1: put, a, put, a, put another way the odds of two people having that list on their phone is very low but the odds of somebody else having that list on their phone and that person being you is yeah pretty high <laughs> Um, but the other two lists that I have on my phone, um, I have a list of names that I think are funny, like like made-up names. Um, oh. I think Partially Inspired. There's an, a great episode of 30 Rock where Liz Lemon is asked on the spot what her doctor's name is, and she says Rufus T. Barley Sheath. <laughs> <laughs> so if, if, if you ever want a really good time, um, just sit down and um start making up names like that. Um, <laughs> like let's see. I've got um, P. Duncan Pork shine.
0: <laughs>
1: um, <laughs> Lorenzo Spacklefin, um, Reginald U Benji Fat. I mean just they, they, it serves no purpose, but every once in a while I'll open this list and just smile at myself.. Um, Yeah. S. Willard Tinklebridge, you know, just fun, just fun stuff like that. And then the final list that I have on my phone that this one, I also just really can't explain it. um, So I work in a government office and I get um, emails about other, the, you know, other offices around the country that are closing down because of COVID. Like if they've had a COVID scare, they have to close the office. And for some reason I keep a list of all of the offices that are, sending out a closure alert because I, I I don't know. I just like to, I kind of like to know which offices, because there's a few offices that like keep closing like every six weeks or so. And so that's just kind of an interesting, weird, little like nerdy list that I also have on my phone.
0: A list I keep, this is very silly. This is celebrity sightings that I have seen in LA (laughs) and being a plebeian, the celebrities that I have seen in LA are not fancy. (laughs) I'm not seeing (laughs) Beyonce on the street every day. Um, So some of the people on this list are, you may remember Ethel Beavers from the Parks and Rec TV show.
1: Definitely. I have seen her
0: twice. (laughs) I have also seen the woman who played Luna Lovegood in the Harry Potter movies. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. I saw, this is a cool one. I saw Keegan-Michael Key walking past the BMW dealership on Wilshire. Oh, I love him. That's a good, that's a great spot. And I saw Meredith from the office at a Starbucks and I don't even <laughs> like that show. <laughs> I didn't go up to say hello or anything, but there she was. <laughs>
1: have you gone up to say hello to any famous people since you've lived there?
0: I have never done that before. Although Luna Lovegood did smile at me because it was just us like we turned the corner and there she was. And I just gave her a little wave.
1: <laughs> nice i've i've thought about that a lot there's a lot there's a a few select people that i think i would go talk to and i think about what i would say to them because they people just must that must be a horrible life (laughs) to have people i feel
0: like it would be annoying right to have
1: like especially like like meredith from the office like that's probably the only role they know you from and they probably just (laughs) want a picture to move on but like so I don't think I would say hello to any of those people too, but I do have a, I think a short list of people I would go up to and be like, "Hey, I don't want to bother you, but I just want to say hi."
0: Oh yeah, who would you say hello to?
1: So um, I would say hello to Conan O'Brien.
0: <laughs> Ooh.
1: partially because um, he has a really excellent podcast in which he has revealed a secret word you can, or a secret phrase you can say to him to reveal that you listen to his podcast. <laughs> And so then it's like, hey, I'm just trying to tell you that I'm like a real fan, like a deep cuts fan, not a crazy person. And uh, so I would say hi to him. Who else would I just not be able to to, to not say hi to? Um, yeah, there's a few. I'd have to think about it. What about you? Who would you not be able to, to pass? Well,
0: with? he's in his 90s. But I would if I saw Steven Sondheim on the street, I would <laughs> 100% stop yeah. <laughs> but also I would say hello to Ola Yelo, my favorite <sighs> living composer. Well, you got me,
1: you got me he's different, up,
0: from, I... he's different from Stephen Sondheim. He's more of a choral composer. So my favorite living choral composer. I I probably sent you his music, did I not?
1: Oh, you did and I ab- I've abs- I absolutely love it.
0: Isn't he fantastic? He is he's completely just fantastic. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, he's... he his music, I would almost describe it as like neo-Renaissance, maybe. Yeah. It's like, yeah. it feels old, but it is new. And chorally, I just think it's just stunning. Just incredible music. He's like in his 40s. I follow him on Instagram. Got a whole big career ahead of him. So I can't yeah. wait to see what else he does.
1: Yeah, that guy is amazing. His album, I think it's called just called Winter Songs.
0: Um, yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, oh, that one's so good. Unbelievable. <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So we are nearing the end of our series on La Valse. We have talked about so many things in preparation for this episode. And we have talked about, what have we talked about now? The Blue Danube Waltz by Johann Strauss. We talked about World War I, Vienna, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Last episode, we looked at the generation that lived through the war, the lost generation. And finally, before we get to our final episode, we will talk about Maurice Ravel, the man himself, the composer of lavals and we'll try to get a sense of what he was doing when he wrote lavals and this is a very ambitious episode because <clears throat> if i had the time i would try to give you like a rundown of the entire century of musical history before maurice ravel mm-hmm. which is impossible unfortunately <laughs> so we'll just try to give you a, a little bit of a uh, you know a little bit of a sampling and then as always Um, If you would like to learn more, you can reach out for more details because I could pontificate about this just forever. Mm -hmm. So we'll do a couple things in this episode. We'll give some historical context, the time period that Maurice Ravel was born into, context about the music that he would have been exposed to growing up. We'll talk about his background, being born in France in the Basque country and how that contributed to his music. We will try to get a sense of what his artistic motives were in writing music, what he was attempting to do. And most importantly, we will listen to some example pieces so that you get Ravel's sound in your head before in the next episode, we listen to LaValse in its completion. So before we get into the episode today, I wanna start by listening to two different pieces of music. One of those is a piece that we have already heard it's the Blue Danube Waltz, and we're just going to listen to a snippet of it for context. this piece we heard it in a couple episodes ago it's very familiar to us at this point and remember it was written in 1865 by Johann Strauss II right now Mm -hmm. let's listen to another piece this is one by Maurice Ravel it's called vocalise etude in form de habanera and while we listen to it we're not going to listen to the whole thing just a selection but while we listen to it think about the differences that you're noticing between this piece and the Blue Danube notice any differences between the piece by Ravel and the Blue Danube Waltz?
1: Yes, I'm I'm, and again, I'm not a music theory person, so I probably can't speak super artfully to this, but I would say the thing that, like, the things that stood out in my mind were the Blue Danube feels like springtime, and that one felt (laughs) like fall maybe, (laughs) and I also Ah. felt where the Blue Danube kind of floats along and is really kind of, um, unified and harmonious that one i felt like i was being pulled in different directions like different instruments were kind of like hey look at me and then others were hey look at me as opposed to the blue danube which all kind of is it's a little more cohesive and like i said flowy so those are the things that stood out to me
0: that's cool yeah i think taking your impressions into account by the way even if you're not thinking in like maybe musical terms is still very important because that's what matters at the end of the day it's not like what chords are being used here, but what, what, what does it evoke in you as a listener? You know, yeah. when I think of the difference between these two pieces, I think, like you said, there's a structural that is kind of breaking down here. For me, the Blue Danube Waltz is forward moving and, you know, it's a dance piece. You can like feel the rhythms and it's almost kind of predictable where it's going, even though yeah. it's not totally predictable, but you kind of have a sense of what it's going to do. This piece by Ravel, to me, feels more improvisational. Like, I'm not really sure what the beat is doing or the melody. Not sure where it's going to go. That's kind of the vibe that I'm getting from that piece.
1: Yeah, I agree with that.
0: So we'll get into more of what Maurice Ravel is attempting to do with music. But keep that piece in your mind as we move forward, because I think it is a very indicative piece of his music as a whole. So a little bit of background on Maurice Ravel himself. He Basque. So he was born in France, specifically in the Basque region of France. And his mother was Basque by heritage, and his father was French by heritage. Um, and this is not going to be an episode about the Basque country by any means. But I have to say that the Basque region of the globe is so fascinating. And if you get a chance to look into it on Wikipedia, I really recommend it. They speak a language in that part of the world called Basque. And it's a language that has no known relatives. And it's not really clear where the language even came from. That's Mm -hmm. called a language isolate. When we talked about my like the most beautiful place I've ever been, the place that I gave was in this part of the globe. It's a very, very beautiful region. And it's like if you're thinking of a map where Spain and France meet and they kind of form like a J on their northern coasts, that's the region of the globe that we're talking about here.
1: Gotcha.
0: So Maurice Ravel was born in Cibor, which is a Basque town close to the, on the Bay of Biscay, close to the Spanish border. But he moved at an early age to Paris. He studied composition at the Paris Conservatory under Gabriel Fauré, And Farré is one of those composers who, as you study more about music, you will hear his name come up. Uh, we could do a whole episode about Faray, of course, but he's a fantastic composer and was a really great teacher for Maurice Ravel. Ravel was born in 1875 in a time period that is referred to now as the Belle Epoque. And in the previous episode, we mentioned the Belle Epoque in the introduction of the episode as being like the precursor to the Lost Generation. Mm-hmm. It was known in America as the Gilded Age, this time kind of before the turn of the century. And it was a time of economic success. There were a lot of people getting very rich. There was a lot of technical innovation happening. And culturally, it was very optimistic. So things like the light bulb being invented, this happened during the Belle Epoque, and the light bulb really took off. All of a sudden you could go to a public space and it was totally illuminated by these electric lights. It was a time of colonization, especially for France and England. If you're thinking about Joseph Conrad's book, Heart of Darkness, that took place and that was written in 1899. So right in this time period, this was also the time when the can-can dance took over at the Moulin Rouge, the cabaret in Paris. And in literature, it was the time of realism. So Henry James was writing, Edith Wharton was writing these shorter, more realistic novels. That was what was popular, literarily. Mm. Artistically, when you think of the Belle Epoque, think impressionism. So Monet was painting his water lilies and Renoir was painting the people at a party. And I don't remember the name of that one painting, but <laughs> that kind of thing. Van Gogh was painting Degas, et cetera. They were at the early end of the period. Whereas painters like Matisse and Gauguin, and then the sculptor Rodin, they were at the end of the period. And they were using impressionism in their art. So instead of painting like realistically, what would people look like if they were sitting at a party, they were painting more evocatively, like maybe not so clear line structure and brush structure, but maybe they were painting like Seurat, who instead of painting explicitly, just did little dots that kind of, when you stand backward, you can see like, oh yeah, that's a group of people on an island. But up close, it's kind of blurry and fuzzy. And that impressionist spirit also translated into music. So there were musicians who, instead of trying to do the conventional forms that had been done in the entire 19, or 1800s previously, they said, why don't we break down what's been done before and try to be a little bit more evocative and less rigid structurally. Ravel's contemporaries were people like Eric Satie, and you may be familiar with his piece Gymnopedie Number no. 1. And there were also people like Claude Debussy, and you also may be familiar with his piece Claire de Lune these are the men that Ravel was writing so one of the um, ways that Ravel tried to defy structure was with one of his most famous pieces which is called Bolero so turn of the century he sits down at the piano and he decides I'm going to play this theme So he sits down at the piano, he plays that, and he says to his friend, don't you think this theme has an insistent quality? I'm going to try and repeat it a number of times without any development, gradually increasing the orchestra as best I can. What resulted from that exercise was Bolero, one of Ravel's most famous pieces. And the entirety of the piece is repeating that theme again and again and again and again until what is finally a 15-minute-long piece. Oh, wow. If you have 15 minutes to kill, I would recommend sitting down and listening to Bolero and putting the challenge on Ravel here because it's on him to make this listenable. Like, we're not trying to listen to miserable music here. So give it a listen and, you know, see if you think, like, did he accomplish something? Like, was he able to pull it off? Or does this get boring? Does he ever lose the thread here i have done this several times and for what it's worth i would say that i'm always surprised at how quickly the piece feels over to me like i don't think at any point i've ever thought like i'm bored here like what's happening it's it's surprisingly shocking like how he does develop the theme and it still moves forward and it still gets exciting even though it's just the same music over and over and over again
1: does it stay basically just being those two instruments? I heard what I would guess is like a piccolo and a snare drum. Is that all it is the whole time?
0: There's more instruments that come in, but I would say the notes that you're hearing are the same notes again and again. It's oh, like sure. the volume and the size of the orchestra gets much more dramatic as it moves forward, but it's still just... Do, 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 do. You could call Ravel's music impressionist and people often do that. When they talk about impressionism in music, they're talking about Satie, Ravel and Debussy, but both Ravel and Debussy refused the term impressionist. Debussy said, I am not an impressionist. I'm trying to create images through music. And that to me is a little bit fussy because I think of impressionism as trying to create an image, you know? So His reason for maybe not being an Impressionist I think is a little bit more in the weeds. Ravel had a more calculated response. He actually thought, yeah, maybe Debussy is an Impressionist. I'm not really trying to do what Debussy is doing. I'm not doing the same thing there. Uh, He also maybe believed that Impressionism and music music might not be possible after all. Painting and music are two different art forms, you know? Is it possible to create an image that everybody sees when they hear the same piece you know you mentioned with the piece at the beginning that it felt like autumn does everybody hear autumn when they hear that piece
1: i'm certain that they don't
0: (laughs) (laughs) and yet like there's something about it that feels familiar you know i hear you say that and i'm like oh i i totally get that yeah Ravel also had an affinity for the Baroque era, which really distinguishes him from his contemporaries. Because again, he's late 1800s, early 1900s. The Baroque era was 300 years prior in the 1600s. So people weren't really writing 17th century music. But Ravel decided that he would. And he actually used a lot of old school forms like fugues, toccatas, minuets. These are pieces of music that or forms of music that weren't being used anymore. And he decided to bring those back. His music doesn't really sound Baroque. It doesn't sound like you're listening to Bach or Handel, but the forms that he is using are Baroque forms. Mm -hmm. One of those Baroque forms that he used was the pavan. And a pavan is a slow processional dance that was popular in the courts of Europe during the 16th and 17th centuries. And one of Ravel's most famous pieces is called Pavan pour un infante defunte. My French is horrible, I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, but that translates into pavan for a dead princess. And Ravel described the piece as an evocation of a pavan that maybe a little princess would have in former times danced at the Spanish court. So let's go ahead and listen to a little snippet of the pavan. you think about that one
1: well you said you used the word dance in relation with that and i can't imagine anyone dancing to that like even yeah the thought of like a ballerina dancing to that doesn't really add up i liked it um but yeah a little um a little i i would love to see somebody dance to that
0: yeah that's kind of a weird one I think the title itself is kind of melancholy, right? Pavane for a dead princess. Yeah. Maybe the melancholy behind that title is kind of part of the spirit of why it's such a slow piece. Ravel intended for that piece to be played like almost too slowly.
1: Yeah.
0: Interesting to think about. Ravel's music was also famous for being very virtuosic. If you've ever thought to yourself like, I wonder what the hardest piano piece to play in the world is. There are actually a couple pieces that people consider to be the hardest, and Ravel's is one of them. He has a piece called uh, *Gaspard de la Nuit*. I think it's a, I think it's like a set of multiple movements, and one of the movements in particular, called the Scarbo movement, is considered one of the hardest pieces to play in the piano repertoire.
1: Wow.
0: So yeah, he's a very good piano player, although he wasn't really thought of as a piano player. He was thought of as primarily a composer, piano player second. So before we close out, I do wanna listen to one more uh, piece by Ravel. This is just a personal favorite. I think this piece is really lovely. We'll listen to it in its entirety because it's only about a minute and a half long. And you may be surprised to hear this, so I'll say it beforehand. The first time I ever heard this piece It became one of the most shocking musical experiences I had ever had. I had never before known a piece of music to be doing what this piece did. And the moments that I've had like a realization of that with music, I I can count them on one hand. It's very unique. So I was very, very moved when I heard this for the first time. And I'm interested to see if you enjoy it as well. So we'll close with this final piece. This is called "À la manière de Borodin," which means in the way of Borodin, who is a Russian composer. And yeah, let's give it a listen. What did you think of that one?
1: So I noticed instantly, would it be syncopation? Is that what's going on there where the notes are? Ba-dum, 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 ba-dum. Instead mm, does, of like, yeah. They, like one, two,
0: three, one, two, three.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: Yeah, there's something funky happening with the rhythms there for sure. Mm-hmm. There's also uh, like the, the harmonies are different than they usually yeah. would have been, like especially in the 19, or in the 1800s, it's like chords that you're used to. Mm-hmm. It's hard to describe like why I like that piece so much. I think for me, I kind of like your experience with the first piece at the beginning, how you felt like it, it felt like autumn. I hear this piece and I am just instantly transported to the Belle Epoque. I'm like, I can see the gilded mirrors <laughs> and I can see the people smoking cigars and they've got their glass of absinthe for me they're inseparable there's such like a french aura that just exudes through this piece for me and it's hard to describe why but i think impressionist i mean sorry ravel if you don't if you don't think you're an impressionist to me i see it i don't know yeah but yeah that's ravel in a nutshell so his music was different than his predecessors he was doing new things that very few composers were really doing at the time. And we will finally take a look in the next episode as to how that all converged in his piece, La Pulse.
1: I'm so excited. I'm, I feel like I'm primed for this. I know <laughs> the period. I know kind of what was on his mind or what was on society's mind. I've tasted a little bit of his music and now we get a, we're just perfectly set up for this,
0: for this piece. I can't wait. Two footnotes before we close out today. First, it's important to note that it was Ravel's Basque heritage which influenced much of his work, such as both the Habanera and the Bolero that we listened to earlier in this episode. These were just two of many instances in which Ravel paid homage to Spanish music. A bolero, for example, is a Spanish dance which was popular in the 19th century. I also wanted to note the musicians who created the recordings in this episode if you would like to continue for further listening. The vocalise étude en forme de habanero was performed by Alison Balsam. The bolero was conducted by Leonard Bernstein with the New York Philharmonic. And both the pavane por un infante defunt and a la manière de Borodin are played by Bertrand Chamayou, who has performed all of Ravel's piano pieces in one compilation album. Thanks for listening to this series. Join us next time for the final episode of the series where we will talk about and listen to the piece itself, La Vals.